Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville. Fiber internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from Bloomington Health Foundation, providing financial support to the community for 55 years, promoting healthier lives and the advancement of future health care in our region, working together for a healthier tomorrow. More at bloomhf.org. And from Estate and Downsizing Specialists, LLC, offering complete turnkey services for estate and downsizing clients, from initial consultation through home cleanout to final real estate and personal property sales. More at edsindiana.com. Welcome to Noon Edition on WFIU. I'm your host, Bob Zaltzberg, along with co-host Bento Boutier. And today we're going to talk with our guests about the U.S. life expectancy and related issues. Life expectancy uh, has gone down, and we want to try to dig into that a little bit. We have two guests with us today, both from IU Health South Central Region. We have Amy Meek, the IU Health South Central Region Community Health Director, and Dr. John Sparzo, IU Health South Central Region Vice President and Chief Medical Officer. If you have questions or comments, you can reach us in a number of ways. You can call us at 812-855-0811 or toll-free at 877-285-9348. You can also reach us on Twitter at Noon Edition, or you can just send us an email, news at indianapublicmedia.org. Well, thank you both for being here with us today, and thank you, Benta, for joining me as co-host. I wanted to just start by asking uh, Dr. Sparzo first and then uh, Amy Meek, are you surprised at the fact that these numbers show a decline for the last two years? Thanks, Bob. I I would say um, not terribly surprised, but obviously very disappointed. Um, What we have seen in the last few years, you know, should be a concern really for, for all of us. To me, it seems as if the pandemic really was like putting lighter fluid on a smoldering flame, that it, it uh, brought to light and increased the impact that certain negative trends we knew about um, worsened during that time frame. Uh, you know, we, for example, we knew about uh, the terrible problem with overdose-related deaths in our country, uh, but those increased spiking over 100,000 deaths annually last year. We knew there were problems with unhealthy lifestyles, uh, not enough uh, exercise, poor diets, but the pandemic really exacerbated a lot of those elements. So again, uh, not surprised, but but saddened. Amy Meek, what do you think? Yeah, I would agree. So um, those numbers aren't surprising, really. The COVID numbers and COVID deaths alone you know, could contribute to some of that. But then as Dr. Sparzo said, just everything that adds to COVID, things that were brought to light or things that were increased, um, behavioral health needs and substance use disorder and all those sort of things, um, you know, those just became bigger factors those last couple of years. So I'm not surprised at all that our numbers aren't where we want them to be. Well, what were the, I mean, you've mentioned a few things, but what were the the most serious places where, um, you could see the decline standing out. I mean, we know COVID, you know, we were in the middle of a pandemic. We know there were hundreds of thousands of people that, that died because of that. But, you know, you've mentioned uh, some of the other negative trends. Um, what are the ones that you that you feel like we really need to, to focus on at this point? And Dr. Sparzo, you might be just repeating some of the things you said, but, you know, I just want you to stress which things we really need to, to focus on. Yeah, I appreciate that. So if you look at the the leading causes of death uh, in America in 2021, um, you're right, COVID's there as the third leading cause of death. Uh, Our usual leaders are cancer and uh, uh, heart disease, and those continue there. But where there's been a lot of growth, it appears in, in the category of accidental deaths, uh, or injuries, and those that comes in at the fourth leading cause of death overall, with about 300,000 people uh, dying in 2021. I think the terrible headlines in there are around uh, what we have seen with uh, deaths from uh, homicide have increased. Uh, after a few years decline, deaths from suicide uh, have increased as well. 
Um, and again, as I mentioned, uh, the increase in overdose death is, is perhaps most dramatic. Uh, it increased about 30,000 uh, lives per year over the prior few years. And that's important looking at those categories because when younger people die, they impact our overall life expectancy numbers more significantly um, than, than when it's older people. The, the number of years life lost is higher. And, and those things I mentioned, accidents, overdose, suicide, homicide, those are disproportionately impacting younger people. And I mean that, you know, uh, in people 20s through 50s, where in the nation and in Indiana, we've seen the, the greatest discrepancy in life expectancy. So you said 30,000 accidental deaths. Um, so was that primarily like people under 30? Do we know um, how many of those deaths were made up by younger population? Uh, I, I don't know that off the top of my head. I don't. But just to go back to that, actually accidents and, and unintentional injuries. And again, those some of those items that I mentioned in there are under that class. That's 225,000 deaths. Oh, okay. Um, so that made it the fourth leading cause of death in 2021, that, that group. So, yeah, numbers are always interesting to me because, you know, I'm a journalist and numbers don't, mm -hmm. aren't are not uh, second nature to me. But so, you know, I looked at this at the numbers and saw that basically the decline had gone from almost 79 in the U.S. to closer to 76 in the U.S. But what you're saying is that people who are in that, those older age brackets they aren't necessarily dying sooner, but it's just that these numbers are skewed because there's so many deaths among younger people. Yeah, I think it's it's a combination of two things, uh, you know, again, to my understanding. So there were excess deaths related both directly yeah. and indirectly to COVID. Uh, COVID, again, in 2021 was the third leading cause of death in the United States. And, and certainly um, that affected people who otherwise uh, may have still be with us today. In addition, I think it's exacerbated by uh, some of these uh, these uh, trends that are impacting younger people as well. So I think it's sort of a, a double hit on life expectancy. Amy, what do you think about this? Well, from a community health standpoint, you know, we've been focusing in a lot this year on our coordinated school health for these exact reasons. So we have. Um, someone who's designated in Monroe County to work with our school systems, someone in Lawrence County, someone in oh, um, sorry, Orange County, and this next school year we'll be adding a person from Morgan County. And, you know, in the past they've worked with the schools on kind of everything from, you know, healthy foods in the cafeteria to sex ed and everything in between. But honestly, post-COVID, what they work on is mental health, suicide prevention, um, and just equipping, helping the teachers be better equipped for things they see in the classroom that they've never really dealt with at this level before. So that post-pandemic isolation really affected our young people, affected their mental health, and um, that's where we've put a lot of our efforts in community health anyways with that age population. What were some of the observations, I guess, that led you to making the decision to shift from sort of food and sex ed towards mental health? Well, so we worked really closely with all the school leadership and teachers, and teachers were really just begging for that extra support. Uh, just, you know, behaviors they would see in the classroom uh, with kids, and maybe they hadn't seen those type of behaviors before, uh, increased depression and, um, you know, kids talking about suicide more. Those were things that maybe in the English class, you know, they, they didn't necessarily always deal with, but um, the teachers really were wanting that extra support. So that's where we've stepped in to try to help some. Okay. And um, not to get too much down a rabbit hole here, but obviously focusing on mental health is very important for suicide prevention, but how are, how are some, what are some other ways that mental health and depression can impact life and life expectancy. Great question. Um, you know, there, there's evidence that uh, simply social isolation itself uh, as a risk factor uh, for 
increasing morbidity and mortality. Uh, in fact, if you look across the pond, as they say at the UK, there's actually a high level ministry in the government that is charged to reduce uh, social isolation, targeting uh, older people as well. But you know, as you, you look at people with ongoing mental uh, and behavioral issues, uh, you know, that, that's, that is, it, it impacts every aspect of their lives, their social interaction, their uh, ability and desire to work on their own health, their ability to follow through uh, on, on those elements. Uh, and we know that some of the symptoms of, of mental health disorders like uh, disordered sleep for example, uh, create problems with people with regard to just their, their overall health, including cardiovascular health. So um, just as if you uh, have a problem with your lungs, you see you know, that, that evidence elsewhere uh, in the person's reduced activity, for example, seeing them short of breath. Similarly, mental health disorders uh, do not occur in isolation. They're, it's part of your entire physiology. I want to follow up on that in just a second, but I want to give our contact information first because that, you know we're having a show on on health issues, and, and I hope that we'll have some people give us a call. Amy Meek is with us. She's IU Health uh, South Central Region Community Health Director, and Dr. John Sparzo is the IU Health South Central Region Vice President and Chief Medical Officer. If you have questions, you can send them to news at indianapublicmedia.org, or you can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition, send your questions there. You can also call us, 812-855-0811, or toll free at 877-285-9348. So I wanna ask a really broad question about mental health. I mean, one of the biggest issues about mental health and addressing mental health issues has been the stigma of mental health. Are we making headway on really looking at this as a health issue rather than something that should be stigmatized. Amy, can you start on that? Yeah, I don't know that I know any stats or data to tell you that we are necessarily other than just my perception. Um, I definitely think that with the the next generations that we are, uh, I know students, they tend to just be more comfortable talking about it, I think, um, which is why I think our teachers were asking for more support because we didn't talk about this in the classroom before. We didn't, we didn't talk about it as openly. So I, um, my belief, I guess, is that the younger population is more apt to talk about it and it's less stigmatized, but definitely that's still an issue um, with a broader topic and, and probably even more so with um, substance use disorder. How do we address that, Dr. Sparzo? Yeah, I think I think that's a great question. Something that that uh, we grapple with every day. You know, some of it I think, is, as Amy mentioned, is generational. Um, you know, and again, I'm speaking in broad generalities here, but you know, some older generations may still feel that signs of depression, anxiety, or other uh, orders are disorders are um, maybe a sign of weakness versus uh, a part of people's uh, physiology and physical. Uh, findings. So I, I you know, certainly applaud Amy and others who are starting uh, with our youth and helping with a broader understanding um, of of this. I think the other the other element that we can all do is is help you know tell stories. Um, many of us have experienced uh, periods of uh, significant depression requiring uh, counseling or medical treatment and the like. I think uh, large, you know, truly millions of Americans have have been through episodes that are significant enough to require treatment. Uh, and I think an openness that we all in our society can begin to bring talking about the problems we've been through, how it's helped, uh, how we were helped uh, by asking uh, for help or seeking help and what a difference it made in our lives. So I think there's something we all can do. I don't think you have to be a, a public health or uh, a, you know, healthcare provider uh, or an expert uh, to help with um, trying to, to dispel the, the stigma. How accessible is mental health care in the U.S. compared to, um, I guess, other similar countries like the U.K.? Um, it's okay if you don't know, but I'm just curious how much of an impact that would make. I can't, I can't say anything on a comparison of uh, the United States to other areas. Uh, I don't know, Amy, if you have any information on that. Yeah, I don't know how we compare to other countries or other areas. I know that there's never enough. <laughs> um, so as the need just continues to rise, 
you know, the, the number of access points just can't keep up with the number of the need. So while I don't, I don't know what it looks like in other countries necessarily, it's certainly something that we're always working on how to improve and how to increase here. Uh, locally, we have uh, you know great relationship with uh, Centerstone and other uh, partners in the community. Um, you know, we worked with uh, Centerstone, for example, with developing the Stride Center, which is a you know twenty four seven crisis stabilization unit um, in Bloomington and Columbus. Uh, that that's targets eighteen and older folks. Um, but you know, we we try to build and maintain those partnerships because. Again, mental health goes through all elements of, of our society. I mean, Amy just mentioned in the school system, uh, obviously people with uh, mental disorders, substance use disorders encounter the healthcare system with greater frequency than those who don't. Uh, and so we really do need to have a community-based collaborative effort to increase access and to try to get people directed to the services that can help them um, you know, when, when they're in a time of need. Okay, um, so we talked about how there's a it sounds like it's a disproportionate amount of young people dying from accidental deaths as they're compared to previously. Um, but we've also talked about COVID and I'm wondering what has COVID done or what role has COVID had in life expectancy in the US? Yeah, great, great question. Um, so it's interesting that, as I mentioned, in 2021, COVID itself was the third leading cause of death in the United States. And that's a very direct number, right? That's the number of people who presumably have COVID as a cause of death on their death certificates. But COVID had a lot of indirect impacts. And not only in the United States, but in most uh, developed countries, they can, we can demonstrate an excess of mortality beyond what would be expected in, in the years 2021, 2020, 21, and 22. Uh, and it's not entirely clear what that, what that excess cause of death is related to. Um, you know, people have suggested that it's some of the indirect effects of COVID. Uh, so for example, right, we sometimes joke about how we all put on weight during the lockdown in, in early 2020. Um, but in fact, you know, what may have happened is people were less active. They did gain weight. They had less access to their primary care doctors because, you know, for periods of time, uh, th things were closed uh, because we didn't have enough uh, personal protective equipment except to care for COVID patients. We had long periods of time where people couldn't access preventive services like mammography and colonoscopy and, and even care for their high blood pressure and high cholesterol. And so some of the indirect effects of COVID that may have impacted life expectancy is exactly that. Missed screenings, missed ma ma management of uh, chronic conditions that has led to an excess number of, of deaths um, in the wake of, of COVID. Is there any evidence that uh, those things have returned to their normal levels, the people who are getting their regular screenings and seeing their physician on a more regular basis? That's a great question. I, I can't answer that with certainty. And I can tell you that obviously with the last uh, surge in COVID being the Omicron surge that really kind of tailed out in the United States uh, in uh, February uh, last year, that there's been a little bit more of a sustained return to normalcy uh, with regard to you know, typical healthcare operations. And I think we've seen that in the, in the general public as well. It's now kind of unusual to see a masked person out there than where it used to be so commonplace. So I think that that would suggest that we're on a road to improvement. But I will um, put a caveat in there that just as the great resignation occurred in many industries, there is some evidence of that in healthcare as well. Um, I'll speak just briefly about my pre previous employer. I mentioned uh, that uh, I worked with a health system in Indiana before I was with IU Health and with our physicians that do hospital-based care. In one year, 2021, we had a 15% reduction in our workforce. And that was a combination of a few people just leaving medicine altogether and others that decided they didn't wanna do it full time and cutting back uh, and doing non-medical things. So while we, 
in theory can still have uh, the same access. I, I, there has been potentially some reduction just because the medical and nursing workforce has been impacted. It was a very stressful time for people who were working in healthcare. There was no doubt about that. Um, Absolutely. I, I don't know if, if you're going to be able to answer this question, but one of the things that the that the statistics show about life expectancy is that the U.S. has been in decline much more so than many of uh, the peer European countries or Canada. Can you explain that? I don't know that I can explain it entirely. I, I would like to point out that, you know, there's there's a lot of factors that play into this. There's sometimes a temptation to look at the payer system uh, in healthcare and, and universal healthcare as one of those contributing factors, and it could be, uh, certainly. But I, I would like to point out that it's fairly widely accepted in the world of healthcare that about 80 to 85% of a person's health status is attributed more to uh, the social determinants of care, the things that are in their environment every day than to their actual health care. And, and so, uh, example, you mentioned uh, countries in Europe, uh, the UK has a rate of obesity in adults of about 28% uh, in the same year, 2021, the United States rate of obesity was 42%. And so I don't think it's a coincidence when you look at the UK's top causes of death uh, in 2021, their top cause was COVID. Uh, and their second cause of death was Alzheimer's disease, whereas our top two were uh, heart disease uh, and cancer, which are definitely diseases and conditions that are influenced by uh, your diet and lifestyle significantly. So that may answer partly your question. No, it does, definitely. Amy, do you have anything you want to add to that? Um, well, I can just add a little bit about maybe those social determinants of health. So in, in community health, we look at a needs assessment that we do every three years, and we really focus the work in the community based on what that assessment shows. So right now we're looking at um, infant maternal mortality, hypertension, tobacco or nicotine use, mental health and substance use disorder, but then looking at all of those things with that lens of social determinants of health. So um, it's not just taking someone's blood pressure, it's looking at, do they have access to healthy foods? Do they um, have health insurance? Do they have a primary care provider? Um, all those things that, you know, where you live does kind of determine sometimes your health. So if you, you live close to grocery stores, you have access to a job where you can buy groceries, you live close to the Beeline Trail or someplace, a park where you can get out and move more, you're just more apt for health than you are if you're more isolated. So, um, you know, we kind of joke that we don't necessarily do blood pressure screenings someplace, um, like the farmer's market, we used to go there some, but you know, when someone's parked and walked a mile to get their organic vegetables, they probably don't need a blood pressure check quite as much as someone who's you know isolated so we we try to target our outreach efforts thinking of that social determinants of health lens more yeah that really leads into my next question uh, you know we've been talking about some of the more macro issues but from a uh, sort of more cl a little closer to home i mean IU, iu health south central region involves uh, not just bloomington and monroe county but a lot of more rural communities so these uh, when you are looking at these communities, Amy, are you seeing, I mean, are you targeting different communities in different ways? Sure, I mean, even in Monroe County, we talk about the corners of the county, you know, you out to, to Steinsville and Unionville, so those are very different than it looks here in Bloomington. Um, and then our region, of course, encompasses, you know, Owen County and Lawrence and Orange and some of our more rural counties. So, um, definitely have to look differently in each in each area um some it depends on what we're going out to you know kind of do um when we're looking at diabetes and blood pressure you know we're trying to find those populations that have the highest risk for that and some of our minority populations are higher at risk for those diseases um some of our more rural areas are more at risk of just accessing healthcare in general right and Indiana overall uh, spends less per resident on public health, and we know that smoking rates, obesity is higher in Indiana than other states. So I guess um, 
what does this mean for sort of life expectancy for all of us? You know, what are you guys thinking? Yeah, I know we had a, a call, I don't know, three or four weeks ago mm -hmm. here right. um, about our public health funding. And so that's an exciting piece that hopefully is rolling out really soon. Um, you know, it's in the legislative process right now, but per capita, Indiana spends somewhere around $55 per person on public health. And the average amount that other states spend is 91. So our public health has been, you know, grossly underfunded for a long time. And that's one of the benefits of COVID, I guess, is it brought that to light, if you can see a silver lining, maybe. Um, so we're excited to maybe soon be average <laughs> when it comes to public health funding. And that'll help to spread this um, to those rural communities. And I, I think, honestly, that's what I've been saying about the public health funding is I think it's going to bring health equity a little bit more than anything else. Because when you look at our health departments, those little bitty counties, they just don't have the staff or the, the means to do the things that larger counties have the ability to do. So this funding, a lot of it will be going to those health departments to target their population and their community the way that they need to do yeah. I'd echo what Amy's saying on that, if I if I can. I think there's there's good evidence that when Hoosiers put their mind to something, um, we can do it well. You know, if you look at how we rank in the nation, you know, from sort of a business perspective, you know, we're considered about sixth best in the nation for affordability of of housing and and lifestyle opportunity for business growth, seventh in the nation, um, growth of our economy about 19th in the nation. And think about it, we we spent a lot of time working on that to make our environment healthy and good for economic development. On the other hand, as, as Amy pointed out from a public health perspective, we have not been investing uh, perhaps at the level we should. And so, you know, as she mentioned, uh, we're well under the national average for our public health funding. And when you look at a lot of statistics from a public health standpoint, we're very near the bottom of the of the country. So 45th in smoking and tobacco use, 46th for obesity, 43rd for mental health, uh, childhood immunizations, 41st uh, in the nation. So um, very excited and, and very grateful that um, our legislation legislators and our public health commissioner and governor have really, I guess, embraced the opportunity uh, to improve this. And so I know that the 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 SB4, this public health bill, has been advanced through both houses, but now it's subject to funding uh, through the uh, bill that will uh, look at the, the true budgeting and the, and the true funding uh, of the uh, initiative. So hopefully it will do well in that and we'll be able to start uh, seeing some benefits in our overall health of Hoosiers in the next few years. You've mentioned uh, smoke. We've we've talked about smoking and obesity a couple of times, and these seem to be areas where Hoosiers uh, have traditionally been pretty far behind um, on the smoking front. How how have the numbers been showing? I mean, have they been going up, down? Uh, what can address that? I mean, we pretty much you know we know that smoking causes lots and lots of problems, yet. Uh, a lot of people still continue to smoke. So are we going up, down, and what can we do about that? Well, I can talk a little bit about our schools. Um, when it comes to smoking traditional cigarettes or tobacco use, we're seeing hardly any of that now, but we're seeing a ton of vaping, which is as harmful or more harmful depending on you know the use. So I think, um, I don't know any hard data as far as the numbers that were uh, compared to in the past, but just the number of kids that are referred to our nicotine cessation programs has definitely gone up and it's all vaping that we're seeing our inner kids. You know, it's easy to hide, easy to take into the bathroom, doesn't necessarily create the same kind of smell. So it's just, um, just a big battle that our schools are dealing with right now, that the vaping crisis. Is it still a case where, you know, a lot of the the flavors of these vaping, uh, you know, I don't know anything about vaping, so I, I apologize to anybody out there that thinks I sound really stupid, but you know, are, are there still these issues with, with uh, like, really sweet flavors and things like that, or is that something that government has addressed? Anybody know? Yeah, it is still an issue. And I know there is some um, 
and I, I don't know what all happened. I know there was some um, rulings even just this past week um, with some of the companies for vaping because that's that's an issue. But definitely there's still a lot of flavors. It's still, you know, the, the pins that they use, some of them look, look like thumb drives. You wouldn't even notice that it's a vape pin necessarily. It just looks like, you know, some of your office equipment. So it's, it's even hard for parents to know that their kiddos got access to that sometimes. I can add for you that, again, not not an area of my expertise, but uh, the American Lung Association does say that, uh, you know, we've had a decline in uh, tobacco use and and, uh, cigarette smoking from uh, 2003 through 2020. But even as of 2020, 19% of adults were still smoking. Um, They do give us a grade, Indiana's grade for funding of state tobacco prevention programs. We, We grade F. Uh, for level of state tobacco taxes, they give us an F. And to your question, Bob, ending the sale of all flavored tobacco products, we also get a grade of F. Um, the best we do is the strength of smoke-free air laws where the American Lung Association gives us a grade of C. Sounds like we got some work to do. Indeed. We have a call that's come in, uh, and the person didn't want to go on the air. Valerie didn't want to go on the air, but she asks, has the change of lifestyle over the years for average Americans impacted these numbers? An example she gave was technology and the fact that uh, young people and old people are perhaps spending more time on their devices and less time going outside to do anything. Yeah, a- absolutely. Um, again, can I quantify that for you? Um, I don't know that I can. I can I can share this in old, old guy's recollection, right? I remember uh, growing up in past years seeing kids out in the street playing and, and in their yards playing even more than we we see now. Um, we've all experienced a trip to the grocery store somewhere um, where um, the child is distracted with a screen in front of them. Um, so, you know, there's definitely been a decline uh, in exercise um, as a, as a element of what we want. And we've certainly seen this reflected in not just a rise in obesity overall, but a rise in obesity in child childhood. And so, you know, again, I, I kind of started this program saying, I think pand- the pandemic threw a lighter fluid on a flame. I, I think we've seen this trend towards uh, an unhealthy lifestyle, too many calories, too many of the wrong calories, too many processed foods, not enough basic whole foods uh, and not enough exercise. We, we knew that was there. And now it's really exacerbating it. And, and I, I'm fearful that we may see some things get worse before they get better because of the influence that's happening on our young people. Uh, so I applaud Amy and, and others um, who are trying to reach the younger population and, and try to reverse some of those uh, frightening trends. How important are early years, I guess, from the time you're born to like 15 on your overall life expectancy? Great question. I'm probably probably not an epidemiologist enough to to answer that for you, but in terms of those being formative years of your life and uh, where you develop habits, uh, where you're around uh, parents and grandparents and others who you might want to emulate, um, those are clearly important with regard to uh, anything from what we're talking about, your perhaps involvement in activity, um, your selection of foods, uh, that's important, but also we, we talked earlier about mental and behavioral health and, and what you see modeled in your environment, um, good or bad coping skills, all of those things, you know, become part of you uh, and, and are things that you either have, that you're either set up for maybe success in the future with or that you have to overcome as you get older. Dr. Sparzo, I know you're an internal, you're in, in internal medicine and also a pediatric specialist. So as we ta- we're talking about childhood obesity, um, I don't know if you feel comfortable uh, imparting a little medical advice. But what what would you suggest to parents who have you know a ten year old or an eleven year old that just looks like they are they're eating the wrong things, they're, they're gaining too much weight. What's a tip or two you would suggest to them to try to, try to maybe modify behaviors? Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. And I, and I think, you know, I appreciate you asking it because I, I have noted that, you know, there's a, there's a a lot of people talking about body shaming. And I completely agree that people should not be ridiculed or shamed because of their body size, their their weight level, or anything like that. 
But I do think that doesn't mean we shouldn't talk about the health impacts of an unhealthy lifestyle that often are the cause that lead to uh, obesity. And yes, there are a small subset of people who have glandular disorders or other uh, take certain medications which cause you to gain weight. But for the majority of people, young or old, who are overweight, it's because of an excess of calories going in, often the calories that are not from healthy um, whole foods and not enough activity. And so I guess my advice to parents uh, is that, first of all, lead by example. Uh, help your children show that maintaining your health is important. Help them choose the right foods by showing them how you choose the right foods. Help them see the importance of exercise by your engagement in, in physical activity. Um, and, and so I think that's the first place. And I think the other element is to, um, uh, to focus again on not on the child's weight uh, or the body, child's body habitus, but again, how, does, how do we want them to live a healthy life? What do you mean? Well, I was just thinking of the, you know, Dr. Sparzo mentioned, you know, setting the example, and I was just thinking of my own schedule even. You know, I did the new edition several years ago, and I know I drove down to your studio and sat in with a panel. Today I'm doing it on a Zoom call. And my day is packed, but it's packed back to back with a Teams call or a Zoom call mm -hmm. or something where I'm sitting at my desk, not getting out like, like I might have used to. And I know I can come home from work some days and be exhausted from the day of work and look at how many steps I got in. And I think, is that it? How did I only get that many steps in? Um, so even just parents thinking about setting that example for your kids, it's not the same for us either. You know, we have... Um, a more digital life now than we did two years ago. So being purposeful about getting out and getting activity and, and thinking about what your kids see is really important. So I'll, I'll tag on to that if I may. It's, you know, I think, I think, first of all, when people think about exercise, you know, they, they may think about the, the TV show, The Biggest Loser, uh, which, you know, where they, they tortured people in, in various uh, ways uh, to increase their exercise. Physical activity, you know, the goal is 150 minutes, that's two and a half hours per week of moderate exercise. Moderate exercise is described as a brisk walk. So this doesn't necessarily mean that you need to be training for a marathon, uh, but that you are physically active. How can you how can you turn something that maybe a, you usually drive to, can you turn it into a walk or a bike ride? Um, and, and we mentioned a lot about technology. Can we link the technology to the activity? Hey, I really want to... Uh, listen to a book on tape. All right, well, I'm going to listen to that with my AirPods in while I take a walk today. So link the, the activities together so that there may be some motivation to do more physical activity by linking it to something the person uh, maybe has more intrinsic joy of. Amy, I actually, for a story I did a while ago on childhood obesity, I interviewed a researcher who mentioned that Monroe County actually has lower levels of obesity overall than the rest of the state. I was wondering if that's something that you had noted or like take into consideration when health planning? Well, so there are a few things. If you think about Monroe County, um, we have access to lots of parks. Um, we have a very strong pediatric group right here at IU Health mm -hmm. Bloomington that has been um, very proactive in working with families to prevent obesity. Um, so I think some of those reasons might account for our numbers maybe being a little bit better. Whenever you live in a rural community, uh, getting out and riding your bike's not always safe. So some of the just natural things that might be easier to do here are a little bit harder in our more rural communities. Um, but it's not to say it's not still an issue here as well. We have about 10 minutes to go on the program, so I want to give our numbers again, 812-855-0811 in Bloomington or 877-285-9348 outside of the Bloomington area. You can also contact us at news at indianapublicmedia.org if you have a question, or you can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. We're talking with Amy Meek, the IU Health South Central Region Community Health Director, and Dr. John Sparzo, the IU Health South Central Region Vice President and Chief Medical Officer. You've talked uh, about, both of you have talked about, you know, modeling good behavior and these kinds of, these kinds of things. And Amy, I, 
I think we talked about this perhaps the last time you were here, but I'm, I'm intrigued by the Nurse Family Partnership Program that you started in uh, that was started in 2018. Can you talk about what that is and, and the, any successes? The, how do you measure success and what successes have you seen? Oh, absolutely. So that program is a program for first-time uh, low-income moms, and it pairs a uh, the pregnant person with a registered nurse, and they visit with them in the community wherever they are. Um, so that could be their home, or if they're, you know, housing unstable and kind of couch surfing, they go wherever the person is. That way, that's not one more appointment they have to make and get to. And that nurse works with them from prenatal care all the way until that baby turns two years of age. And there's three goals for that time, and it's everything around um, the pregnant person's health, everything around the baby's health, and everything around economic self-sufficiency of the family. So all of those social determinants of health. So um, while we, the program does all of those clinical things that you would expect, and we work on breastfeeding rates and immunization rates, uh, we also work on you know, education and getting a job that can support the family's needs, um, working on healthy relationships and who the support system is for the family, um, parenting skills, making sure you're active with your child and reading with your child, all of those things. And um, the program, uh, well, I mean, my bias is my favorite program. I mean, it, <laughs> right. It's got a lot of wonderful outcomes. The state of Indiana has recognized it so much that they expanded funding for it this past year. So in 2023, Nurse Family Partnership, at some point, it's, it's rolling out gradually over the year, but it'll be available in every single county in the state because of its outcomes. Well, I think a, a lot of times, if I could just, if I may, I mean, a lot of times things, when you talk about modeling behavior, a lot of things are generational. And people do what they what they learned when they were very young. So if they, so yeah. if the the method that a new parent learned wasn't particularly helpful, then what you're doing is showing them a better way or a different way. It is, and one of the things that we do are um, ACE screenings, and our OB offices do these as well. So that's adverse childhood experiences. So we talk with the parents about their childhood and some of the things that may have led to trauma for them. And so we don't only just talk about like how to prevent that for the next generation, but you know how to help that parent who's gone through all those things build resiliency in their own life so that they can be better equipped and how to build resiliency in their in their child so when they do face hard times they've got some good skills to lean back on okay so um this is kind of broadening things out a little bit but as we've talked about drops in life expectancy over the last couple years i'm wondering are we talking about a drop for someone who was born in 2021 are they overall expected to live not as long or is that for anyone living today like i'm i was born in 1996 is that life expectancy projected for me as well a great question. So it looks at the way the statistics of life expectancy are, are put together. And so, you know, typically the life expectancy, as I understand it, is calculated based upon a person born, uh, born today, uh, what, what would their life expectancy be? And so um, as a result, as we talked about earlier, the, the deaths of young people uh, more adversely impact the overall life expectancy for our state or our country as a whole. Similarly, high infant mortality rates would also have a significant uh, impact on, on life expectancy. Easiest way to think about this is, um, you know, we think back when the life expectancies in the 1800s, you know, might have been 40 years old. Uh, we think, oh, wow, that people only lived to be 40. No, there, there are a lot of people that lived well beyond 40, but it was so impacted because the infant mortality rate was so high in those years. And so somebody who made it to age 20 had a much higher chance of living to say 60 or 70 than somebody who was an infant born at that time because their risk of death was so high. So a long way of stating that no, your individual life expectancy hasn't been impacted by the change in these statistics because they're just a statistical glimpse of our society at the time. Uh, what is more likely to determine your 
life expectancy, as we mentioned, the social determinants of your health care, uh, of your of your health, um, and then your genetics, um, and and uh, you know the, the overall milieu that you're in. Does that answer your question? It does answer my question. Thank you. We have a question from Wendy, and it's uh, uh, I'm glad that you are going to have a chance to address this. It says, how do the challenges um, such as high health care costs, uh, limited time with patients, too many patients for one doctor, members of the healthcare field leaving affect the quality of health care you know, in a community? And does this have an impact on you know, our public, the health of our community? Yeah, it's a, it's a wonderful question and, and one that honestly we face every every day. In fact, I'll tell you that one of our strategic goals for the South Central region is around increasing access to primary care, particularly uh, in our in our region. Uh, we know it's a it's a huge need because that you know the primary care is supposed physician is supposed to be the, the first contact uh, for most health issues. And by having a reliable primary care office, you know, it keeps people out of the emergency room. It helps make sure they're getting critical screenings and immunizations. And uh, so it, it really is a critical element to this. Even, you know, even as we mentioned, 80% of your health outcomes related to those social determinants, we can't ignore the importance of the 20% of healthcare. So I'm, I'm very pleased to say that, you know, in the South Central region, we've very, very aggressively been trying to take this on, including uh, aggressively recruiting. We've actually added seven net new uh, primary care providers in the last year, and we have uh, a similar number uh, coming in future in the future year. Uh, and we're actually planning for growth of our primary care network uh, in other areas uh, of the region right now. And hopefully we'll be able to announce soon that we'll be starting a residency program in internal medicine. So we'll be training uh, physicians uh, to do primary care for adults right here in the South Central region. And we know uh, st statistics will tell, tell us that uh, the number of primary care physicians is greatly enhanced uh, within 100 miles of any uh, training program uh, for that type of physician. So critically important, and, and we view it as a priority as well. A very hot button issue that I want to bring up is gun violence. Um, it's it shows up on as a list of uh, any list of um, the prime causes of deaths of of young people. Now, um, you know, it's a very political issue. Obviously, uh, how I, I just want to ask you to go as far as you can or want to in your comfort level in talking about um, the issue of gun violence in terms of our our statistics about life expectancy. So I can talk just a little bit in terms of community health. Um, okay. Gun violence specifically isn't necessarily our expertise or by itself something that we focus in on. Um, we have had in the past where we you know, try to buy like gun locks and have some gun safety information that we put out so that um, students can take it home to parents and make sure that they have talk about gun safety at home. Um, really in community health and um, for our region, we focus it more in on that mental health aspect and um, and taking care of kids and as far as suicide prevention and things like that. So it's kind of a, a category, I guess, but it's not something that by itself, I guess, we focus on. All right. I do want to say, well, Benta, you've got some numbers now for mental health oh, right. resources? Yeah, so we did talk a lot, especially at the beginning, about mental health. Um, so I just wanted to be sure that we read some numbers before the end of the program. The Indiana Center for Recovery for Mental Health Treatment is 877-310-1996. That's 877-310-1996. And the Indiana Suicide and Crisis Lifeline is 988. That's 988. And also, we have the National Alliance on Mental Illness, 800-950-6264. So those are some resources, and they'll be on our website, I'm sure. So uh, we only have a couple minutes left in the program. Dr. Sparzo, when you look at the, the numbers, um, and you may have already – we probably have covered this because we covered a lot of territory uh, already today. But I just want to give you a, a chance to, to just um, – 
note one key element that you hope that people will take away from this issue to try to help improve the health of individuals and our community as a whole? Oh, thank you. First of all, thank you so much for hosting this today and allowing us to, to participate. We're honored to be a part of it. Uh, you know, I think the takeaway I would have are, are two things. And, and one is I, I said about midway through the program that when Hoosiers put their minds to something, we can accomplish a lot. And I think that if the legislature continues on the path that it has set with the uh, SB4 passage and funding, uh, I think that we can really see some great improvements in our public health and in turn our life expectancy over the coming years. So I guess I'd urge people to uh, reach out to their representatives at the state level and, and encourage them uh, to uh, support this legislation because I think that's the single biggest thing uh, that's uh, coming uh, to bear fruit uh, in the near future. Amy, any last thoughts? Yeah, I would agree the single single biggest item being that legislature that's coming down the pike. So um, supporting that in absolutely any way that you can. And then just in general, you know, taking care of each other. So as we talked a lot about behavioral health and, and mental health and social, social isolation, um, you know, checking in on your family, checking in on your neighbors, taking care of each other. All right. Thank you, Amy Meek, IU Health South Central Region Community Health Director, and Dr. John Sparzo, IU Health South Central Region Vice President and Chief Medical Officer. Enjoyed having you on the program today. For my co-host, Bento Boutier, and our engineer, Mike Pashkash, and also Nathan Moore, our producer, I'm Bob Zaltzberg. Thanks for listening. Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville. Fiber internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from Bloomington Health Foundation, providing financial support to the community for 55 years, promoting healthier lives and the advancement of future health care in our region, working together for a healthier tomorrow. More at bloomhf.org and from Estate and Downsizing Specialists, LLC, offering complete turnkey services for estate and downsizing clients, from initial consultation through home cleanout to final real estate and personal property sales. More at edsindiana.com.